You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and views from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 17th of March for the listening week that begins the 18th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey, opening with current events from theroot.com. This was published on the 15th by Angela Johnson. U.S. government is looking to update racial and ethnic categories. Among the changes, the government is considering removing racial-slash-ethnic descriptors that have been outdated for decades. Even though we're only asked every four years, filling out a census form can be a pain in the ass. And if, like so many Americans these days, you check more than one racial-ethnic identity box, it can be downright confusing. Now, in light of the changing face of America, the government is considering changing the way we all identify for the first time since 1997. The White House Office of Management and Budget is looking at whether or not to update the racial and ethnic identity categories used for the census and other demographic data-collecting initiatives. They're considering adding and changing categories to make the process more efficient and effective for people to self-identify. And like every other issue, of course, people have some pretty strong opinions on both sides. Some conservatives argue that adding more ethnic categories will only create more division and take away from all of the, quote, united we stand stuff we brag about. By creating and deepening subnational identities, the government further contributes to the decline of one national American identity, wrote Mike Gonzalez, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, in a comment on the OMB webpage where they are asking for public comments on the issue. On the other side, are those arguing why these new categories are long overdue? ADOS should be a detailed group within the category of Black or African American, because it clearly defines our country of origin, our history, and our legacy. Black is a color and is not specific to our lineage. African American is too broad of a category. Black immigrants do not share this history, wrote another commentator. Pardon me, that word is commenter. And that ADOS stands for American Descendant of Slavery. Continuing, among the suggestions are the creation of a new category, M-E-N-A, for people of Middle Eastern and North African descent, parentheses, who are currently categorized as white, and combining race and ethnic origin into a single question to make things less confusing for Hispanics. There could also be an option for black people to identify as an American descendant of slavery. In addition to the changes, there is a proposal to remove some outdated a.k.a. racist, terms, including the word Negro, 
from the black-slash-African-American definition and replacing the term Far East with East Asian. In the words of Lizzo, it's about damn time. And this week's hour contains uh, quite a few pieces from the New York Times. This first one was posted March 11th, written by Emily Schmall from the New York Times. Stripping Confederate ties, the U.S. Navy renames two vessels. The vessels will be named for Robert Smalls, a mariner who commandeered a Confederate ship to freedom from slavery, and Marie Tharp, an ocean geologist who studied continental drift. One night in 1862, as the Civil War raged, an enslaved mariner named Robert Smalls seized an opportunity when the enlisted crew of a Confederate steamer disembarked for a night of carousing in Charleston, South Carolina, Mr. Smalls, the ship's pilot, gathered his family and the other enslaved sailors and their families. He then steered the ship for a dramatic escape past heavy fortifications to Union-controlled waters and freedom. Disguised in a top hat and a Confederate captain's long overcoat, Mr. Smalls gave the passcodes at each of five Confederate forts, and, once past the reach of cannon fire, hoisted a white flag of sewn-together bedsheets that his wife Hannah had made, delivering the ship to Union forces. Mr. Smalls and the crew had lined the bottom of the boat with explosives to detonate rather than be recaptured and face execution. Now Mr. Smalls will be immortalized on a U.S. Navy warship named after him, as will Marie Tharp, a pioneering ocean geologist. Both are receiving broader recognition under a Pentagon program to rid military installations and other property of Confederate ties. The Naming Commission, a committee created by Congress in response to a public backlash against Confederate memorials in the wake of the 2020 murder of George Floyd, identified two ships to be rechristened in the Navy's fleet. One, a warship deployed in the waters off Japan, called the USS Chancellorsville, after the Confederate Civil War victory in Virginia, will be renamed the USS Robert Smalls. The other, a Pathfinder-class oceanographic, Survey ship, currently called the USNS Maori, was named after Matthew Fontaine Maori, a U.S. Navy commander who resigned in 1861 to join the Confederate Navy during the Civil War and who is known as, quote, the Pathfinder of the Seas for his work charting the global paths of ocean currents. It will be rechristened the USNS Marie Tharp after the ocean cartographer who helped document the phenomenon of continental drift. When the naming commission informed the Navy that it would have four assets to rename, two buildings at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and two ships, dozens of suggestions flooded Secretary of the Navy Carlos del Toro's office, said Traylene Hudson, a civilian employee in the Public Affairs Office. The Navy is planning namesake ceremonies that do not disrupt operations of either ship. The ships were renamed after two people who, quote, 
have historically been overlooked, but leveled significant impact on not just our Navy, but also the nation, said Mr. Del Toro in emailed comments to the New York Times. It's a wonderful honor for my family and for Robert's legacy, said Michael Moore, Mr. Small's great-great-grandson and a businessman in Charleston, South Carolina. I think it's an appropriate elevation of a true American hero. Mr. Smalls was born to an enslaved woman, Lydia Polite, in 1839 on a plantation in Beaufort, South Carolina, as part of the Gullah community made up of descendants of West African enslaved people. He grew up on the water, learning to fish, build, and sail a boat at a young age, said Mr. Moore. He was working as an enslaved pilot of a steamer ship when war was declared. Pardon me. After his daring escape, he fought for the Union, becoming the first black American to command a Navy vessel. After the war, he represented South Carolina in Congress, owned a newspaper, and founded a railroad. At a time in which there was so much that needed to be done in America, he rolled up his sleeves and stepped in and made an enormous difference. He led a life of extraordinary consequence, said Mr. Moore, who said he is planning to run for his relative's congressional seat. The eponymous oceanographer Miss Tharp was pioneering in her field, creating the first scientific maps of the Atlantic Ocean's floor and helping to shape the U.S. military's understanding of plate tectonics and continental drift, with some of her research funded by the Navy. Born in 1920, Miss Tharp took advantage of a change in university admissions, allowing women to enroll during World War II to receive an education that until then had been restricted to men. Miss Tharp and a colleague studied sonar data taken from the research vessel of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the Atlantis, to create highly detailed seafloor profiles and maps. Miss Tharp noticed a cleft in the ocean floor that she hypothesized to be a rift valley that ran along the ridge crest and continued along the length of its axis, which she posited, and was later proven, to be evidence of continental drift. I had a blank canvas to fill with extraordinary possibilities, a fascinating jigsaw puzzle to piece together, mapping the world's vast hidden seafloor wrote Miss Tharp in a book about the Lamont Dougherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, where she once worked. She went on, It was a once-in-the-history-of-the-world opportunity for anyone, but especially for a woman in the 1940s. The significance of her contributions would become evident as research in her field continued over the decades. For most of her working career, her contributions weren't really celebrated, her intellectual contributions were discounted. Maureen Ramo, dean of the Lamont Dougherty Earth Observatory, said, even though, quote, her evidence of seafloor spreading was probably the biggest scientific revolution of the 20th century, certainly in Earth sciences. The vessel's renaming is part of a broader Pentagon project to grapple with the legacy that for more than a century has paid homage to Confederate victories and leaders. Naming army bases and other military property and erecting monuments and memorials to honor the Confederacy was part of a campaign by the children of Confederate soldiers to, quote, reimagine their fathers as not the villains of a treasonous war for slavery, 
but instead for the southern way of life, said Michel Paradis, a lecturer at Columbia University. President Woodrow Wilson, an ardent segregationist, saw granting the requests to honor Confederate soldiers as a good way to rally support among his southern base during a draft for World War I, said Paradis. In the protest that broke out across the U.S. after Mr. Floyd's death in the summer of 2020, demonstrators took down dozens of Confederate memorials and monuments. That summer, Congress voted to expunge from Defense Department assets names, symbols, displays, monuments, and paraphernalia that commemorate the Confederated States of America. The same legislation established the Naming Commission, which quickly proposed new names for nine Army installations in the South. In September 2022, it produced a report with recommendations to rename 1,111 places, from bases to ships to monuments, according to a committee member, the retired Brigadier General Ty Seidule, emeritus history professor at West Point and professor at Hamilton College. Mr. Del Toro said both Mr. Smalls and Ms. Tharp were among people whose work was worthy of historical recognition. Last year I visited Robert Smalls' home and I knew his courageous endeavors in the face of the most harrowing scenarios for me made him the right choice for the renaming of the former USS Chancellorsville, said Mr. Del Toro. Marie Tharp, as a pioneering oceanographer who had her work dismissed for most of her career, was also the right candidate for the renaming of the former USNS Mari, a ship tasked with continuing her life's work, he added. Many of the Confederate names that remain are attached to Army posts, said Professor Seidel, because the Civil War was largely fought on land. When the posts were being named in World War I and World War II, and the South was a one-party apartheid state, they would name them for people in their local community, these Confederate soldiers, he said. It's not just about getting rid of names. Whom you choose to honor is who you value. I would be incredibly proud to serve on the USS Robert Smalls, he added. Still from the New York Times, this written by James Barron, posted on March 9th. A monument to Harriet Tubman replaces a Columbus statue in Newark. A new statue honors the abolitionist hero, but it also prompts a debate about Newark history and honoring George Washington. This morning, Mayor Ras Baraka of Newark will preside at the unveiling of a massive monument to the abolitionist hero Harriet Tubman. She did extraordinary things, he said in an interview on Monday, and we happen to be part of that in Newark. The monument is being dedicated amid renewed efforts to recognize Tubman by putting her portrait on a $20 bill, an idea that began during the Obama administration but was halted after Donald Trump became president. Last week, Senator Jean, pardon me, that's Jean Shaheen, a Democrat of New Hampshire, introduced a measure that would require $20 bills printed after 2030 to carry Tubman's likeness. The monument in Newark, Shadow of a Face, includes audio with Queen Latifah that was produced by Audible 
which is based in Newark. The monument includes a circular learning wall where visitors can read about Newark's history and the life of Tubman, an enslaved woman who escaped in 1849 and then led hundreds to freedom as the conductor on the Underground Railroad. During the Civil War, she was a Union spy. They can also listen to narratives about the Underground Railroad and free black communities in New Jersey. The city said it's commissioned local historians led by James Amamasor, a professor at Rutgers University, to develop research material for the wall and the audio stories accompanying it. Shadow of a Face has been installed in a park where a statue of Christopher Columbus stood until it was removed in 2020. Last year, Baraka led a ceremony that changed the name of the park, which had been Washington Park since the 1790s, to Harriet Tubman Square. I think people know of her name. She's one of the people who make the cut in school and other places like that, but really probably not in depth, said Baraka on Monday. I think this monument allows us to see her as a human being and look at her in depth and see that she showed up in these places. He said the monument would make her experience real for all of us. We have to figure out how to transform the city in such a way that we can be proud of it collectively, he said, noting that some had accused him of changing history. He said, we're actually not. We're adding people who were left out. That's a change that should happen. It's important for us so we can move on and figure out how not to live this moment again. Nina Cook-John, the architect and designer who won the commission for the statue in a city-sponsored competition, said the surface of one wall of the monument would have information on key players in Newark who were active in black liberation, who would have been active in the Underground Railroad. Cook-John said the Tubman Monument had acknowledged the Columbus statue by leaving the outline of the footprint of the pedestal. I'd love it in ten years for someone to say, what's that? It needs to be part of the story of why the people of Newark decided it was important for it to come down and to have a monument to Harriet Tubman in what had been Washington Park. By some accounts, Tubman led runaway slaves to the First Presbyterian Church, which dates to 1791. Baraka mentioned First Presbyterian in the interview on Monday, but the only place in Newark listed among the 700 sites on the National Park Service's Network to Freedom Underground Railroad is the site of the Plain Street Colored Church, which no longer exists. It, quote, represented the unyielding work of the Newark black activist community for black emancipation and as Underground Railroad activists. That's a quote from the entry on the network's map. Liz Del Tufo, the president of the preservationist group Newark Landmarks, agrees that Tubman is someone to celebrate. She said, She deserves much better than to be considered a replacement for Columbus. Harriet Tubman, a magnificent woman, has no footprint in Newark. She was questioning Tubman's connections to Newark. By contrast, Washington, she said, has a big footprint in Newark. The park that is now home to the Tubman Monument saw skirmishes with fatalities during the Revolutionary War, she said. 
It also housed a school that was used as a hospital for patriots. As Philip Roth said, Washington Park is our link to the founding of the United States. The mayor said to me, that was your independence, not mine. He's right in the sense that the Declaration of Independence didn't do much for anybody except wealthy, white, slave-owning men, said Del Tufo. However, it did make us all Americans, she said. Baraka said it was, quote, impossible to change the fact that Washington was here and Newark was a serious kind of beachhead for the American Revolution. That's real, he said, but it's also real that the Underground Railroad existed here and Washington owned slaves. That contradiction is something we should be okay to address. Next, from the travel section of the New York Times, this written by Nina Burley, posted March 3rd. Black soldiers cycled 1,900 miles across the U.S., so he did too. A remarkable journey from Montana to St. Louis by 20 black infantrymen in 1897 seemed doomed to obscurity until Eric Sedeno, a bicyclist, retraced their journey. In the summer of 1897, 20 black U.S. Army infantrymen cycled 1,900 miles on fixed-gear, state-of-the-art bikes from Fort Missoula, Montana to St. Louis. The Army ordered the grueling expedition to see whether soldiers could form a bicycle corps. Newspapers chronicled their progress as they pedaled 50 miles a day in mud and sand, through Montana's snowy mountains and across Nebraska's burning plains. The 41-day undertaking was a bit of lost military history until Eric Cedeno, a long-distance cyclist and a model based in Santa Monica, California, reenacted it in June of last year on the expedition's 125th anniversary. I've always been fascinated with history, said Mr. Cedeno, 49, who have spent years gathering photos and documents related to the infantrymen and their journey. It was on a cycling trip from Miami to New York about ten years ago when he decided he wanted to learn more about the history of long-distance cycling. His curiosity led him to the 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps. It was the first time that I saw a black man from that time traveling by bike, he said, referring to the historical photos of the soldiers on their bicycles. And I'm going to interject to try to describe this photo they've got inserted here with the um, caption underneath. The 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps poses at Yellowstone National Park during a shorter expedition in 1896. And they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight men scattered independently across on levels there with their bicycles and their gear and they're standing in such a way that they look to be um, at different levels there on an outcropping I don't know the exact location in Yellowstone but it's quite lovely looks like they all have their uniforms and hats on the soldiers were part of the 25th Infantry Regiment, one of the African-American units whose members were also known as Buffalo Soldiers. The 20 selected men who were joined by a physician and a journalist on the expedition were led by Lieutenant James Moss, 
who was fascinated by bikes and proposed creating a bicycle corps. Lieutenant Moss, who was white, had graduated last in his class at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, just three years before the expedition. Most of the people did not want to work west of the Mississippi, said Mr. Cedeno. So west of the Mississippi was left to the last in the class, and most of the time west of the Mississippi meant that you had to work with African-American troops. It was these troops who achieved a remarkable feat in both black and cycling history, one that Mr. Cedeno has drawn new attention to by following in their bicycle tracks and telling their stories. I spoke to him about it in February after he gave a talk about the journey at the Explorers Club, a members-only society in New York City. The conversation has been edited for length and clarity, and I may edit it further for time. First question, you reenacted this journey. What were the highs and lows for you? I started my expedition at 5.30 a.m., on June 14, 2022, precisely the hour and date the soldiers set off. It was 42 degrees when I was riding in Montana, and as someone who lives in Southern California, that's pretty cold. It was windy, but there was no snow, which they had to deal with. On the lower plains into Nebraska, it became really hot, about 105 or 6 degrees almost every day. Luckily for me, I was not on an army expedition, so I was able to take my shirt off. Every ten miles I would go into a convenience store and ask if I could go into the beer cooler. I would eat my snacks inside the beer cooler. People were so great. Once I told people what I was doing, they were like, yes, please, whatever you want. The soldiers didn't have that opportunity to go into a beer cooler. They also rode in uniform and carried heavy rifles on their backs. These guys were almost superheroes, you know, like super-powered. Tell me a bit about the bikes. They had the latest bike of the time, an 1897 Special Spalding that cost about $75, which at that time was a lot of money for a bike. The Spalding Company donated the bikes in the hope that the Army would buy more if it worked out. So, single speed... In 1886, the bikes had wooden wheels and no chain guards. In 1897, they saw that, quote, if we're going through snow and rain, we're going to have to change the wooden wheels to steel wheels and add the chain guard, which they did. How did they manage to feed and hydrate themselves? There was a water issue that started when they crossed Wyoming to South Dakota. They drank some contaminated water, and a few of them got ill. Regardless of what was going on, they had to keep moving. There were times when they rode almost 50 miles without water. They had bacon, flour, coffee, left at drop-offs near the railroad every 100 miles. Along the way, they would buy meat and eggs from farmers. The racist response to the men increased as they moved east and south. Why was it so much easier to be a black man in Montana at that time? I don't know if it was better. I mean, they still dealt with some racism there, but they were part of the community, and they did so much for the communities that people realized they had to give them respect. 
The 25th Infantry Regiment was stationed out there doing army things like helping restore order during mining strikes. They encountered increasing racism as they got further east and south, especially in Missouri. But then, when they got to St. Louis, over 10,000 people showed up to celebrate them. Some 300 cyclists rode the last few miles with them. That made me happy. What happened to the Corps? You learned that at least one of the men, the mechanic, was buried in an unmarked grave. The Army never created a Corps, although I hear they tried them in Poland and India. In 1898, some of the Buffalo soldiers were sent to fight the Spanish War in Cuba. Some returned to Missoula, Montana. Some were sent to Brownsville, Texas. In 1906, there was an incident there for which the black soldiers were wrongly blamed. They were cleared by local law enforcement, but Teddy Roosevelt dishonorably discharged them anyway. First Sergeant Mingo Sanders, the oldest rider in the expedition, was near retirement and pension. I have seen a letter to the president pleading that he not be discharged, but he was. That hurt me a lot. This is only 41 years after slavery, where some of their dads, their moms, were enslaved, and for the first time they had a job. They felt like part of society. They felt like we're equal. They're fighting for this country. They just came from war. We have the names of 20 writers. These men are somebody's grandparents, somebody's great-grandparents. They don't know how badass they were, but I want everyone to know. Next article comes from the Washington Post National Section, written by Ruby Kramer, posted March 4th. A Life in Congress, Lauren Underwood Learns What It Costs. As a single black woman in the House, the 36-year-old Illinois Democrat tries to balance who she is versus what she does. What was this she signed up for? Oh, pardon me, that's... We'll start over. Was this what she signed up for? Not exactly, but Lauren Underwood was here to do the job, and today, on a Friday at 11 p.m., the job was to sit in the House chamber and to wait, alert, present, attentive, for her name to be called near the end of the alphabet. So that's what she did. She had her navy blue blanket draped over her legs. She had cough drops and hard candy in her bag. Underwood, Underwood pardon me, came 405th in the line and 40 minutes into each roll call after four Johnsons, four Smiths, three Thompsons, and two Tauruses. Fourteen rounds of votes and still no Speaker of the House. Four days of anxiety and confusion, waiting to be sworn in. It occurred to her early in that week that the world was watching and that Congress was not exactly putting its best foot forward. There was a grimness haunting the place. It was not a happy scene. Underwood scrolled through text messages on her phone. Across the aisle sat the new Republican majority. She heard murmurs. Then she heard yelling. The word combustible came to mind. She turned and saw two colleagues about to lay hands on one another, an almost fight breaking out in the house chamber. Was she surprised? After four years in this job, no, not really. She looked back down at her phone and fired off a skull emoji to her sister. One more vote and then she could begin her third term in Congress. 
and all that was fine because Lauren Underwood had given a lot to be here. So had everybody in the room, of course. This job, being a member of Congress, was not supposed to be easy. There were Ameri- They were, pardon me, America's public servants. Some of them were famous for it. Some were not. Some put in the work, striving beyond the bare minimum, and some did not. All of them had done what was required to survive, to win a campaign, to secure their seats, to be one of the 435. But Lauren Underwood had given something different. There were a lot of women like her, but she didn't see many in Congress. The truth is, she loved her job. She believed she was good at it, too. She'd had 14 pieces of legislation signed into law under Presidents Trump and Biden, She was going to serve in a House leadership role now, the first black woman elected by her colleagues since Shirley Chisholm in 1977, as co-chair of the House Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. She'd kept her head down, and she had worked. Going viral, she had learned, was overrated. If anything, she had dialed back her personal online presence over the past four years. It only invited hostility and ugly darkness. She'd come into Congress with the class of 2018, part of that big blue wave of young, diverse women who promised to block Trump and change the way things work in Washington. Underwood, a registered nurse from the Chicago suburbs, wanted to make the health care system better. She was 30 years old, just a regular person, she said, when she gave up her career to run for office. She was 32 when she became the youngest black woman elected to Congress. That first week here, four years ago this January, had been so busy, so full of possibility. Everything was new. She remembers wanting to work with her colleagues in, quote, this really sweet, optimistic way. She remembers searching the halls for a Republican bestie, a fellow member of Congress who could be her partner on meaningful health care legislation. But that was before two impeachments, before January 6, 2021, before she knew the job. Now she was less candid, less trusting, more aggressive about managing her time. Now she knew that people would waste your time here if you let them. Now she knew that some Democrats and Republicans avoided eye contact when they crossed paths in the hall. She also knew that to keep the job, she had to be perfect. She couldn't mess up, and so she didn't. Early on that week, when she learned that her assigned seat with the Democratic leadership team would be in view of a C-SPAN camera, she was vigilant, careful to be seen paying attention. She was seated on the aisle across from the Republicans. The confrontation between Representative Matt Gates and Mike D. Rogers just a few rows behind her. Her district, Illinois' 14th, about an hour outside of Chicago, was competitive. The seat had once belonged to a Republican giant, the former House Speaker of eight years, Dennis Hastert. Now it was Underwood's to lose. She'd won it by five points in 2018. Two years later, the margin had shrunk to 1.4, a difference of about 5,000 votes. Her opponent had refused to accept defeat. He'd even flown to D.C. for freshman orientation. Three times now, always by single-digit margins, Underwood had fought to hold on to her place in Congress, and she'd done it, she said, quote, 
in a really serious way, in an all-consuming way, in a no-days-off kind of way. Which meant raising money, lots and lots of money, and then turning around and doing it all over again. Every day felt like an opportunity for the whole thing to implode. It was like a war, and there were landmines everywhere. Quote, and you just can't step on any, but you're seeing them explode all around you. It had been that way since 2018. But she was 36 years old now. She was single. She wanted kids. She dated. But life with a member of Congress, she knew, was not for everyone. Like a lot of women, she had mapped out what it would mean to raise a child on her own. She had researched the costs of fertility treatments, the timeline she'd need to follow, the financial reality of paying for full-time child care on top of not just one home, in Illinois, but also an apartment in Washington on her salary of $174,000. Like a lot of women her age, Underwood said she had health complications that put her firmly, permanently, in a high, high, high risk category for pregnancy. She knew all of the data, the risks, in part because she had made black maternal health her signature legislation in Congress. Like a lot of women, Underwood had made sacrifices for her work. And that's fine for now, she'd remind herself. It was an active choice to be here sitting in the chamber at 11 p.m. on a Friday as her Republican colleagues prepared for the 15th time to elect a new speaker. But it always, I mean, pardon me, was it wasn't always an easy choice. Sometimes it was like the skull emoji, funny and surreal. Sometimes it was not funny. She would remind herself, this is what we do, it's not who I am. But then another thought would come in, this is all I do. Not many members of Congress talk about the distinction between what they do and who they are. In politics, the two bleed together like circular, self-evident logic. The who is the resume that makes you qualified for the job. The who is the backstory that explains why you want it that you have authenticity. The who is the family by your side. Very quickly, the who becomes ancillary to the what. Underwood always tries to keep the two separate. She once compared the split to Beyonce's alter ego, Sasha Fierce. Lauren Underwood and Congresswoman Underwood were different. The nasty things people said on the Internet about Congresswoman Underwood She said, it is no reflection of who I am. At home, she prioritized time with her parents, Clarence and Darla, because they understood this most of all. They really care about Congresswoman Underwood, she said, but they mostly just care about me. At work, she tried to set boundaries, erecting a hard wall between her campaign staff and her congressional staff. If she had something to say, she said it, and said it plainly. She had no issue answering questions with yes or no, and then letting the silence hang. She viewed her work with the same level gaze, assessing its possibilities and limitations in equal measure. She believed her legislation had unequivocally made a difference. She had helped lower the cost of prescription drugs and made health care more affordable. She felt she was part of a new generation on the Hill and that this was healthy for democracy. But also, she knew how to be honest with herself. As the youngest black woman elected to Congress, and as a single black woman in Congress, 
Her situation was not by any measure normal. She had looked into me, freezing her eggs. She had researched the financial implications of in vitro fertilization, adoption, and full-time child care. She said, this stuff is not free. Even with a more favorable district, that reality does not go away. She was careful, especially careful, as she spoke about this. Her voice was quiet. I doubt that I will physically have a child. But I don't know. In late 2021, she had surgery to remove uterine fibroids, non-cancerous growths in the uterus. She knew that black women were three times more likely than white women to have uterine fibroids, that black women faced a higher risk of more severe symptoms, and that one of those potential symptoms was impaired fertility. After the surgery, her dad stayed overnight with her at home. They watched Food Network reruns. The procedure generally, pardon me, generated a few perfunctory lines in local news coverage. But this was a major surgery. It was unexpected and significant. It carried implications for her maternal health. She said, so we have to make decisions and I have to make them now, but it's just a different thought process given my job responsibilities. In Congress, Underwood's signature legislation is a package of 12 bills called the Momnibus, aimed at reversing preventable black maternal health disparities. Compared with white women, black women are three to four times as likely to die of pregnancy complications, a gap that has only widened over the last century. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one of the Momnibus bills centered on veterans, was signed into law by President Biden in late 2021. I know I can have a full and very fulfilling life without being mom, but I just want to make sure that it's my choice versus something that just happens, she said. I say all of this, and then, you know, I could meet a guy, and then next spring I'll be like, oh my God, I'm in love. He's so wonderful. I might be surprised. I would be delighted to be surprised. She's used to people making assumptions about who she is and what she wanted to do, based on her age, based on what she looks like. When she came to national attention, reporters asked her to position herself relative to the squad, the group of four liberal lawmakers that came to define the class of 2018, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ihan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, Tlaib. To weigh in on something they said or compare herself to their tendency to go viral, but she wasn't like the squad, and that was okay, she thought, or at least it should be. She was used to people asking her to subscribe to an ideological label, centrist, socialist. She'd answer, I am a Democrat, refusing to elaborate further. At 12 weeks until election day, Dread was a strong word, but she was hyper-aware of it. She said, a town hall is two hours of landmines exploding in front of you. It's just whether or not you step on it, but it will definitely explode. I came to Congress to help people get some health care, she said, like, just like at a really basic level. 
Three days from now, the town halls would begin. Weeks from now, talk of a red wave would overwhelm the news. But on election day, Democrats would turn out to vote. Underwood would win. She would keep her seat by 8.4 points, her biggest margin yet. And that would mean something. It would mean something now, and it would mean something in two years, and two years after that. It would mean something if she decided to run for U.S. Senate one day. It would mean that maybe she could do the job. But it wouldn't be all she did, and it wouldn't be who she is. Next article continues with the women in politics theme. Back to the New York Times, posted March 8th, written by Jasmine Uloa. More black women run for office, but prospects fade the higher they go. A black woman has never been a governor, and only two have been senators. Despite progress at lower levels of government and one boundary-breaking vice president, familiar barriers are slow to fall. As Representative Barbara Lee hits the campaign trail for a Senate seat in California, significant hurdles await her. The race is expected to be one of the most competitive is and expensive in the country. Even more daunting, she will face one of the strongest glass ceilings in American politics. When Miss Lee, 76, was first elected to Congress in 1998, the House had 11 black women in office and only one black woman served in the Senate. With the swearing-in of Jennifer McClellan as the first black woman to represent Virginia on Tuesday, the House now has 28 black women in its ranks, a new high-water mark, but the Senate has none. Ms. McClellan said, It blows my mind that in 2023 I am a first. Frankly, it is this imagination gap that people have had for a very long time, that because they haven't seen a black woman in these offices, they can't imagine it. Over the past decade, black women have made tremendous gains, Kamala Harris broke barriers as the nation's first black, Asian-American, and female vice president. More black women are leading major cities, and many more have sought Senate seats and governorships. But winning those offices still poses familiar and enduring challenges for women of color, and for black women in particular. Many confront both blatant racism and sexism, along with subtler forms of racial and gender bias that candidates and political advocates said make it more difficult for them to raise money to pay for the costly work of hiring staff and buying advertising in expensive markets. The numbers are stark. Only two black women have served in the Senate in its 233-year history. Ms. Harris, who was elected in 2016 in California, and Carol Mosley Braun, the Illinois Democrat who served one term in the 1990s. Out of 64 black women who have run for the Senate since 2010, only eight have secured major party nominations. No black woman has ever been elected governor, and out of the 22 who have run for the position since 2010, only four have become major party nominees. It is absolutely shameful that we do not have a black woman in the Senate, especially given the contributions of black women to this country, said Stephanie Brown James, 
co-founder and senior advisor uh, at the Collective PAC, which works to elect black candidates. Interviewed before her swearing-in, Ms. McClellan said her run for Congress after nearly two decades as a state lawmaker was much easier than her first when she was 32 and had never held public office, but had been highly involved in democratic politics. But she said her trajectory showed the higher standards black women must meet. We have to prove ourselves at another level that others are not required to, she said. I just want to emphasize that because someone's experience may be different, it doesn't mean it is less valuable. Black leaders and advocates working to increase women's representation in politics still see signs for optimism. The dearth of black women in government has encouraged more to seek higher office. And, much like the generation of black female politicians in the mold of Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress in 1968, this wave, this next wave of leaders has high-profile models, role models, pardon me. They include Ms. Harris, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman on the Supreme Court, and Stacey Abrams, whose first campaign for governor in Georgia in 2018 propelled her to prominence as a political tactician, even if her second run exposed her limitations. The possibilities of the electoral map for black women's leadership has expanded over the last 10 years, and the numbers of black women running and winning and running and losing are all rich data points to be able to build the blueprint forward, said Glenda C. Carr, president and co-founder of Higher Heights for America, which is dedicated to helping black women win elected office. The void in the Senate in particular has served as a motivator, said Ashanti F. Golar, president of Emerge, which recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. So many bills impact black women and we don't have a voice in implementing them at all, she said, citing legislation on abortion rights and the high mortality rate among black mothers. But for black women, the hurdles to higher office begin even before they decide to run. In places for governor, most voters still tend to picture men in the job, and they require women to provide far more evidence about qualifications, according to research by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, a non-profit—pardon me—a nonpartisan group working to increase the ranks of women in politics whose namesake is a Massachusetts philanthropist with no relation to the congresswoman, Barbara Lee. Men can release their resume and it is taken at face value, said Amanda Hunter, the foundation's executive director. She went on, women have to show what they have accomplished in each position. An increasingly toxic and divisive political environment that often turns black female candidates and politicians into targets on social media has only added to the burden of entry. Former candidates and campaign officials said a prime example is Ms. Harris, who faced an onslaught of racist and sexist online attacks on her gender, identity, and appearance during and after the 2020 campaign. Racism and sexism are common enough on the campaign trail, and women running for office, black or white, are peppered with concerns about their electability. The question is pointed, can she win? 
black women often come up against another question. Can she win enough white voters? In fact, the number of black women serving the House from majority white congressional districts jumped to five in 2020, up from two in 2018. But Nadia E. Brown, the chairwoman of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Georgetown University, said black female candidates still have greater difficulty winning in statewide races, in part because of media coverage, both reflecting and reinforcing the biases of voters in general. It tends to treat black female candidates as experts only in issues that black women disproportionately deal with, minimizing the scope of their experience. She said, they are not seen as the go-to people on tax policy or the go-to people on immigration reform. Money, however, is perhaps the biggest hurdle. For black women to win, the money has to come early, and it has to come often, and it has to come in competitive amounts, said Miss James of the Collective PAC. The donations they receive tend to be fewer and smaller, researchers and black political operatives have said. Despite the obstacles, the support networks have grown, and in recent election cycles, black women have made headway in hard-to-win places. In 2020, Marquita Bradshaw, a Tennessee Democrat and environmentalist, pardon me, environmental activist, was the only black woman to secure a major party nomination for Senate. Last cycle, all four black women nominated for Senate came from southern states. In Florida, Representative Val Demings raised about $81 million, the third highest fundraising amount of any Senate candidate, to take on Senator Marco Rubio. He raised nearly $51 million, and he won. In the Senate race in North Carolina, Sherry Beasley, a Democrat and former Chief Justice of the state's Supreme Court, raised more than double what her Republican opponent, Representative Ted Budd, pulled in, but he was outmatched, oh, pardon me, she was outmatched in outside spending by Republicans. That, plus Mr. Budd's endorsement by former President Donald Trump, seemed to tip the scales in an otherwise sleepy race. The two other black women who won nominations for Senate races last cycle, Crystal Matthews, a former state lawmaker from South Carolina, and Natalie James, a first-time candidate in Arkansas, never raised anywhere near the several million dollars required to mount competitive campaigns in those deep red states. They each brought in only around 100000 Ms. James, a real estate agent and political activist from Little Rock, helped organize mass protests after the murder of George Floyd. She has been considering running again, she said, as she has watched Ms. Lee roll out her campaign. Among those talked about as future candidates for Senator Governor are trailblazers like Attorney General Andrea Joy Campbell of Massachusetts, the first black woman to hold statewide office, and Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester, a Democrat who is the first woman and black, pardon me, first black person to represent Delaware in Congress. In the California race to succeed Senator Dianne Feinstein, Ms. Lee, the highest-ranking black woman in the House, has several advantages. She serves on powerful House appropriations and budget committees and has gained national recognition as a leading anti-war voice in Congress. But she started behind her competitors in fundraising 
and her rivals, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, built national profiles and donor networks during the Trump administration. Ms. Lee, whose announcement video underscored the racism she has confronted, said she was first inspired to run by Ms. Chisholm, who took her on as an organizer and director during her historic 1972 presidential bid, and, Ms. Lee said, taught her to dismantle unjust rules. But Ms. Lee had been challenging the status quo long before that. As a high school student, she successfully challenged cheerleader tryouts that were overseen by a small committee and excluded women of color. The rule changes she helped usher in there allowed the entire student body to pick its squad members, and Ms. Lee became the first black cheerleader of her school. As she now runs for the Senate, she said, a common refrain she hears from white voters and potential donors is this, We love you, Barbara. We think you would make a great senator. But Adam Schiff, he just looks like a senator. It is the same situation as years ago, she said, when I did not look like what a cheerleader should look like. But all of this is positive because I am challenging that. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Trendware. Colorado's best full-service IT-managed services and purpose-built computer device provider. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.